Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. I was thinking, this is Somalia. There is no government here. The nearest British embassy is in Kenya, 1,500 miles away. Who on earth comes to help us here? I've split today's episode into two separate parts for reasons that will become obvious, because I'll explain them now. Colin Freeman is a British journalist and author who was chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph until 2016. He mostly covered the Middle East and Africa. And then one day he was kidnapped by Somali pirates after his bodyguards double-crossed him. The very people who were supposed to protect him turned against him. And Well, he'll go into the hows and the whys. Anyway, he'll tell us what it was like as well, uh, what went through his mind the moment he realised he'd been captured. There's a lot more to the story, as we didn't have all that much time to chat. So on top of what is mentioned by the very stoic Colin in today's episode, he was also threatened with being handed over to Islamists who wanted to execute him. You can read more about his ordeal in Kidnapped, life as a Somali pirate hostage. You might hear that I'm struggling to speak without coughing. I've just had a week of or a bout of COVID. I'm feeling much better now. Just My throat's killing me and I can't stop coughing, which is not really good for my profession. So thank you for putting up with with this. The reason we didn't have so much time uh, with Colin is because he was under curfew in Ukraine, where he's currently working for the Telegraph as a war correspondent. So I thought, if he's out there, I can't just talk to him about pirates. You can't just have a chat with someone about pirates while they're out in Kiev or Kiev. The other episode then covers that part about Ukraine and it just seemed a little incongruous to go from Ukraine to pirates in just one show. Uh, Also, I'm trying something new. From now, I might stop the outros after the podcast because I read that Apple podcast charts are ranked based on completion rate and there's a huge drop-off in listeners towards the end of my episodes um, when it's in the outro. I know some people like it but it's always going to drop off a little bit. And also, you might want to listen to the next episode as well. Um, You don't want to listen to me ramble on for several minutes. I'll see how that goes. Nothing is set in stone. By the way, my brand spanking new free newsletter went out today for the first time. Uh, It's a little email, and it contained all sorts of funny tidbits, life hacks, advice, and ridiculous things that listeners have sent in behind the scenes. Uh, info about last week's episodes and next week's as well it's a bit of fun to start the week um, but also hopefully a bit of value for you a bit of intrigue uh, and some some nice things to learn from i'm rambling it's called the weekly edge and you can subscribe to it free on weekly edge because that's the name of it weekly edge dot substack dot com 
And unlike a lot of the Substack stuff, this is entirely free. That's the whole point of it. It's just a way to sort of improve the community feel of the whole podcast. The link is in the show notes. And today's email went out to more than 300 of you. So uh, join that community now. It's weeklyedge.substack.com. Another nice thing is that I'm seeing more and more of you in the chat when I premiere the videos at 9 p.m. UK time on Mondays and Thursdays on On The Edge YouTube channel. Uh, so just like the day that it comes out in the audio format, it comes out later at 9 p.m. Uh, and it's really nice to be able to talk to loads of you there. So do come on down, listen in the morning on here if you want, and then re-watch it, sort of half-watching and remembering bits you liked while chatting to me in the sidebar. Um, but now, it's Colin Freeman and a tale of Somali pirates. And I won't see you at the end, but uh, maybe next episode. I want to ask you about being taken hostage by pirates because that is something that doesn't, you know, happen to most people. Could you uh, tell me the story? Yeah, so this was um, back in 2008 during the Somali piracy crisis which for, for those of uh, your listeners who don't remember it, it was, was mm, nearly 14 years ago now. Um, basically, um, Somalia at that time was a pretty lawless state. It had no functioning government. Um, one thing it did have, though, and still does, is a big, long coastline, um, nearly 2,000 miles of coastline. And it, uh, parts of that coastline on the Horn of Africa um, are... You know, on the edge of the world's busiest shipping lanes, and uh, the one thing that um, the one other thing Somalia had in abundance at that time was guns. And so, what began to happen was that um, local fishermen um, began to uh, sail out on the seas and hijack passing vessels, um, taking them hostage um, and then demanding ransoms for the uh, the, the, the the sailors' return. Um, this started out in about 2004, 2005, and at that time, what the, the fishermen were doing was uh, mainly just boarding um, foreign uh, trawlers who were poaching illegally in their waters and often just robbing the trawlers or sometimes taking them hostage. And there was an, an element of kind of Robin Hood rough justice to it. But when they realized that they could make a lot of money out of the ransoms that um, they could extract from taking uh, these foreign fishermen hostage, uh, word, word got round and then suddenly it was no longer just foreign trawlers getting taken, but pretty much any passing ship. Um, and in 2008, the, the, the whole piracy began to escalate quite a bit, I think really just as word spread amongst various militias and um, in, in Somalia, there was money to be made doing this. And on a particular occasion in late 2008, um, they, the, the pirates hijacked a very large oil tanker, a Saudi oil tanker called the Sirius Star. And it, it, was, it was worth about $150 million, this, this oil tanker, and had about $100 million of oil on it. It was there equivalent of a you know, Spanish galleon full of gold or something in the, in, in, in the piracy of the Elizabethan era. At that point, my office, uh, the, when I was working for the Sunday Telegraph, said, can you go to Somalia and do some reporting on the ground about um, how these pirates operate and what local people think about it? Um, the reason I was chosen was because I'd been there once before, in about two years before, so that counted me as the, the office expert on Somalia. Um, 
so off we went and we were not trying to you know go to one of the pirate towns where these people were operating um, we weren't quite that daft because we realized we'd probably get taken hostage but what we thought we could do is go to one of the the, the towns on the pirate coast one of the main commercial towns and, and get a kind of whiff of the pirate atmosphere um and uh because at the time there was there was quite a lot of money pirate money coming into these towns so you get new houses going up and people cruising around in flash suvs and so on and so forth a bit like going to a, a, a drug producing town maybe in colombia or somewhere where you might not see people you know um selling you know wandering around with huge sacks of cocaine but you get a sense of of what's going on so off we went um uh you could fly there in those days from djibouti one of the neighboring states just on a, a main mainstream commercial airline we went to a town called basasso which is a town on the on the northern coast of somalia where the piracy was focused um it's a very poor town um uh, and also quite a lawless place. It's not just piracy going on on that coastline. There's people smuggling, weapons trafficking, drug trafficking, all kinds of maritime crime. Um, uh, the, the other problem is it was quite a small place. So as a foreigner, you your face, uh, especially a white foreigner, Westerner, you, you stand out quite a bit. And um, one of the problems with piracy spreading in Somalia as it did was that people began to look at foreigners, Westerners especially, um, as just potentially, um, you know, that's a hostage, that's a potential hostage, there's money to be made there. Not everybody, but certainly some people. So the, the kidnapping culture that was already taking hold at sea in the, in the form of the piracy was spreading onto the land as well. So we knew we were a bit at risk of getting taken hostage. I don't think we kind of quite realised how much risk um, but to to try and stop that happening, we hired armed bodyguards, which is a common practice in Somalia anyway, for for foreigners visiting the country, whether you're a business person, an aid worker, journalist, what a diplomat, what have you. Um, and what, what these people are usually just sort of um, a group of seven or eight guys with guns, not necessarily very well trained. But um, they're carrying Kalashnikovs, you maybe pay them 20 or $30 a day each. And the idea is that they probably won't lay down their lives for you, but they're a bit of deterrence from it to anybody else from trying anything on. Um, unfortunately, the bodyguards that we hired, we hired them through the, the local fixer and translator that we had on the ground in Basasso. Um, they didn't turn out to be um, very trustworthy. And on the last day of our trip to um, uh, Basasso, the bodyguards, the very people that we've been paying to keep us safe, uh, decided to kidnap us themselves. Um, we don't know whether the the fixer who had um, uh, who had hired them had a had a hand in this. We suspect the fixer might have known something about it, but what we don't know is whether the fixer uh, did this willingly or whether they had a gun put to their heads and told this is what's going to happen. So, um, but. Uh, Anyway, so um, the, the, the actual kidnapping itself happened as we were, we were driving out of town on the way home to the airport that day. And um, uh, my colleague, Jose, who was a Spanish photographer who was working with me, a freelancer. Um, I, I was on staff at the Daily Telegraph at the time. Um, uh, we were sitting in one pickup truck, uh, in the cabin of one pickup truck, 
And um, the bodyguards were in uh, another pickup truck traveling behind us, which was the usual configuration that we did. Um, the bodyguards pickup truck suddenly um, sped up, went past us and uh, pulled in front of us, blocking our path. Um, two of the bodyguards jumped out, waving their guns and shouting at our driver. I was initially like, hmm, what's going on here? Because I, I don't speak Somali, so I wasn't really sure what, what was being said. Um, but part of me to start off with thought maybe there's just an argument about which which route to take or whatever, because um, they can be quite, they can express themselves sometimes quite uh, volubly, the bodyguards. Um, and um, uh, then though they dashed over to our side of the car, opened the doors and ordered us both to get out, um, pointing guns at us. And I think as my, as I jumped out the car, I think I remember hearing Jose say, oh, shit, like that. And I think it was at that point that it hit me that we were getting, you know, shit, this is it. We're getting kidnapped. You know, here we go. What did that feel like? Um, it's a shock, as you can imagine, um, partly because we suddenly realised, right, this is probably being been planned for the last few days, um, at least. Um, there must have been eyes on us. Um, and you know, this is not a random kidnapping as it were, because it's being done by our own guys. You know, it's not just a group of people jumping out at you on the, on the street or something like that, or waylaying you while you're driving down a highway. Um, uh, so yeah, the first few seconds, you, it's all a bit of a numbness. You're not sitting there analyzing it. You're kind of going oh, what? Oh, like that. Um, uh, they opened the boot of the car, uh, the boot of the pickup and, um, uh, said, right, get your, get your bags out of there, um, and put them in our car. Uh, I think they actually told us to do that, um, as opposed to doing it themselves. And, um, with hindsight, you still think, well, what if I had refused to do so or made a commotion at that point, we were still in a built up neighborhood. There were people around. Perhaps if we'd sort of said, no, 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 and, and, you know, shouted and made a song and dance, we could have attracted enough people to, um, to who would have wandered over. And then perhaps if a crowd gathered, then the, the kidnappers might have lost their nerve, maybe, you know. In my case, if someone's pointing a gun at your stomach, it's just like, whoa, yeah, 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 I'll do whatever you say, you know, um, absolutely, you know. Uh, yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags, full, sir. That's the that's the uh, fear response I've been looking for you since we started talking in the other episode about Ukraine. Uh, just if you have a sort of fear response, because I get scared just sort of looking at myself in the mirror or something. You know, um, this this would have been over the t- legs would have turned to jelly. I wouldn't be. I'd, my vision would have gone blurry. I think what what was going on in your mind? Um, well, I mean, the, the, so they when when they when they told us to put the bags in the car and so on, you're still kind of slightly on autopilot. Um, really not an awful lot is going through your mind. Then we drove off out of the town um, at top speed. And we had the, the I remember the driver of the, the, the vehicle that was the, of, of the pickup truck at that point. Uh, he had us in the cabin of, um, this was the bodyguards pickup truck and all the bodyguards in the back. And we drove out the town and into a sort of desert area with lots of sand dunes. And uh, he was driving like a professional getaway driver, you know, sort of zooming over these sand dunes and driving at a really, really high speed. And yeah, very much in control. He clearly knew what he was doing, you know. 
um, like a get a bank robbery getaway driver, and they were all whooping in the back, and you could sense that there was a sort of feeling like, hey, we we pulled this one off. Um, I meanwhile was was not in such a you know good mood. Um, I think it was at that point you began to sort of your brain begins to sort of kick into gear and think, oh shit, what what's going on here? And I think the um, the, the, the the part part of me actually knew because I'd worked in Iraq before then that you know kidnapping was a bit of an occupational hazard if you spent time in certain parts of the world and I had several colleagues kidnapped in Iraq. Um, and, uh, you know, so I thought, right, well, now it's kind of my turn, as it were, almost. Um, Iraq, certainly at that time, was a very bad place to get kidnapped because a lot of, you know, a lot of the kidnapper gangs were Al-Qaeda gangs who, you know, were going to kill, kill you rather than kidnap you. Somalia didn't have that reputation. Um, a lot of the kidnappings were for money, but on the other hand, we didn't know who had taken us at that point. And also... I was thinking, yeah, this is Somalia. There is no government here. Um, the nearest British embassy is in Kenya, 1,500 miles away. Who on earth comes to help us here? You know, and then there's, there's, unlike Iraq or Afghanistan, there's no coalition army coming to look for you either. So it, it was, you know, it, it, there was a little bit of me sort of, I think, kind of went into, water, into sort of training mode of, right, yeah, here we go. This is the thing that, you know, happens to a lot of journalists, and sadly, in the modern day. But then, 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 and then the next bit was, yeah, this is not a good place for it to happen, though. And then the other strong emotion that kicked in a few minutes later was, oh, hang on, right, who needs to know? Oh, right, uh, oh my God, yeah, uh, my girlfriend's going to find out about this. Mum and dad, oh shit, you know. And um, my mum and dad were uh, in their sixties at that point. And you think, yeah, if this goes on for days, weeks, months, who knows, this is the sort of thing that can lead, a, you know, elder, an elderly person or indeed anybody, um, you, you know, into this is, this is stroke territory. This is heart attack territory. This is not a joke. You know, we talk about stress sometimes causing people, you know, physical harm. And I often think, well, it's a bit, you know, a bit dubious, but I don't think there's any doubt in this in this situation that, that that something like that could happen and that even if I did get released in a fortnight or three weeks or two months, you might go home and somebody says, yeah, you know, your mum's not well and she, she collapsed and this is on you, pal, you know, um, and which sort of takes me to the, I suppose the final bit of this, which is guilt. You suddenly think I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to have a horrible time here, but my God, my, you know, my nearest and my dearest are going to have a horrible time as well. And this is on you. Um, here you are thinking it's all rather cool going around all these dangerous places in the world, coming up with with fun pop stories about your glamorous journalism job. But now that what you've done, you've got yourself into trouble, and you're um, you, you're going to make your your friends and family pay hell too, and your colleagues. Um, and you just you know, felt like a sort of a selfish tit, really. To be honest, um, it, it was it was not a good moment. Um, and, and just in case we don't come to this again in the podcast, um, I am a lot more careful these days about where I go, and I'm fairly careful not to go to places where kidnapping is um, is an endemic threat. Um, so 
Yes, so I think that that probably covers the, the sort of emotional side of it. It was a, it, it was pretty grim, as you can imagine. Yeah. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Then what happened what happened next? So we were driven um uh for about 40 minutes or so. We were driven across um a, a kind of a desert area of sand dunes and so on, getting further and further away from Basasa, further and further away from civilization. It was a, a very we, we end up getting into a very remote, air, empty area, driving up into um, towards a range of mountains, and then the truck reached um, foothills, a point in the foothills where it could go no further. We all jumped out and um, we abandoned the truck, and then they they sort of gestured at us with their guns and said, "Right, start walking up this canyon." And off we went, and um, we then stopped at a clearing in one of the canyons where I suddenly thought, hmm, well, I've assumed this is a kidnapping. They're not just going to sort of execute us on the spot here. You know, so, you know. Uh, and then one of them reached into a bag, a backpack he had, and uh, pulled out some Mars bars and um, <laughs> uh, some box of water. And 
sort of foisted them out and said, eat, eat, like that. It was like being with a, a kind of strict schoolmaster, uh, scoutmaster or something. Um, and then we, we resumed our march, and it was clear that we were, at that point, that they were going to keep us alive, um, uh, or for, for, for the time being anyway. So we then uh, basically route marched over these mountains, these very remote mountains, for the next two days, getting very, very tired, uh, very thirsty. And really, I mean, we, we stopped overnight and slept rough, but it was it was tiring and exhausting, and of course, you know, fairly scary. Um, we didn't really. It, it was also a very very empty area. There was there's you know there weren't even paths on these mountain um, tracks. There was it was just empty remoteness. Um, we did not see a soul. We didn't see any sign of human habitation anywhere. Um, you know, you thought like this is the kind of place that yeah, you can imagine people getting taken to if they're kidnapped. Is it boiling hot as well? Um, no, it was. Um, it, it was about sort of 20, 24, 25 degrees. It was. It was December, November, December time, which I think counts as kind of Somali winter time. So actually, the the, the temperature was. If there is such a thing as being ideal for being kidnapped in case the temperature was ideal, it was it was warm during the day and not too cold at night. So um, yeah, it was that was one of the saving graces, and it didn't rain. Um, but um, as I say, it was it was a very remote area. We we had one worrying moment on the first day where we uh, wandered a, a goat herd. A, a young boy was a goat herd. Uh, wandered up over the the brow of a hill as we were walking along, and the kidnappers stopped and talked to him. And he could obviously see that we were with him, uh, with the kidnappers. And um, part of me thought, oh great, a witness to what's happening. Maybe he'll go and tell the you know his his pe- people in the local village, and the human cry will go up. And then I thought, mm, hang on, what if you know uh, is it poss- is it possible they might just shoot this kid or something like that? They stopped and talked to him, and you could tell there was a bit of a tension in the air. And then the kid just wandered on. But I, I did remember thinking at that time, you know, God, I really, really hope nothing happens to him because then I will have that on my conscience as well. Um, quite apart from the, you know, the, the fact that they would have shot him. Um, you know, you, you're, you're thinking quite a lot about how you can escape from someone like this emotionally intact at that point. And I think if something had happened to him, it, it would have. I, I, God knows where we'd have gone. Yeah, luckily nothing did. So, yeah. and then, how did you get away, or where did you go next? We were walk, we walked for about two or three days, and then uh, we ended up at a cave, or um, one of a series of caves, where we spent the next six weeks um, in the in this mountain range. So, um, some of them were were proper caves, like kind of Bin Laden style caves, where you know there's a big kind of entrance the size of a motorway tunnel that stretches miles and miles into the into the back of a mountain. Some of them were just kind of overhangs in rocks. Um, but w- we moved, I think, probably half a dozen or more times from one cave to another. Uh, I- I'm not sure why. I think just to, you know, probably for security purposes to keep on the move for one re- reason or another. Um, and we spent the days living in these caves. Um, Jose and I, we, we had a, a mat, a, a raffia mat about the size of a double bed that we sat on. Um, most of the day, usually at the edge of the cave, so we could get a bit of sunlight and so on. They weren't insisting that we were right at the back or whatever. Um, there was food cooked on a campfire, goat meat and rice, basically three times a day. 
bit boring, but could probably have been worse, you know. Um, cups of tea and um, about five cigarettes a day each as well, um, which I didn't smoke prior to, well, I had smoked when I was in, in my in my sort of early 20s. Um, I was what, I was 38 when this kidnapping took place. I, at that point, I thought, yeah, it's might have time to start smoking again just for a while. Um, it did actually help, help the time go. Um, and then other, other than that, I mean, we, we spent the day just sitting on this mat, really. We lived on it. We ate there, slept there, you know, um, uh, past the time of day there. It, it, the main problem really was boredom. You know, you literally kind of living as a Stone Age person. There was no books, no TV, no distractions really other than, you know, talking to each other, which was fine for the first couple of weeks. But after a bit, you you know you, you start running out of things to say to each other, and that, that's when it you know, time starts slowing down. And it gets quite difficult. And then, how were you saved? Well, the the, the Telegraph during all this period had um, the, within about five days, we were taken up to the top of a mountain and uh, allowed to make what's what's called a proof of life phone call home. Which so we rang the, the Telegraph and. Uh, um, said, yeah, hi, look, we're, you know, we are stuck on this mountain. We've been kidnapped. Um, they had worked out that something like that had happened by then. Um, and um, the kidnappers demanded a ransom, um, $3 million for me, $3 million for Jose. Um, luckily, it was the same amount for each, you know, one discounting Jose or, or me for one reason or another. Um, and... Um, uh, the paper said, "Well, look, we're not going to pay a ransom because we um, we don't think that's a you know a, a we disagree with it on principle for obvious reasons and b also uh, you know paying ransoms encourages um, you know it will discourage other foreigners, aid workers, journalists, and anybody else, business people from going to your country. So they, they tried to bring some diplomatic pressure to bear on local." I think local clans, chiefs, local politicians, local, you know, local power brokers, as it were. Um, and they also brought in a team of professional negotiators as well, uh, who were paid for by the the, the Telegraph's insurance um, kind of people and so on. M- most big newspapers have, you know, contingency plans for this kind of thing happening, luckily, um, which isn't always true if you're a freelancer. Um and uh, however, the way those negotiators work generally tends to be, you know, that they don't like give their methods away publicly. So when I got out, I was not really told much of the detail of what had been done to get me freed. Um, uh, you know, um, I know that money, you know, uh, money was asked for, but uh, the exact sort of circumstances of, of how I was released um, I'm not really that that much the wiser on there are things I know about but um, I you know that the insurers sort of said look you know we, we don't want people we don't want that information disclosed because it's part of the part of the processes and techniques that we use to get people freed and um, given that the telegraph their staff especially and the organization more generally, worked very hard to get me out i you know i i sort of stick to that and also um you know uh um if i talk about it in too much detail then it it 
it, it compromises potentially the safety of other people um, further down the line. It's frustrating for anybody who wants to know, I must admit, but that's the way it is. The moment you were freed, um, that must have been mind-blowing. Uh, yeah. It, it, so on the day, we, we, we had a few false starts. We were told at one point we were going to get released and... Um, uh, it didn't happen. And the next day we were told that there'd been a big argument in the gang and that they were going to keep us for another year, which was not great. Um, and um, uh, But then before we could really digest that news, um, they suddenly came back all smiles and said, no, the, you know, the, the arrangement is now back on um, and you'll get released tomorrow. So what happened was we were... Um, uh, we were taken to from one cave to a, another cave, and then suddenly a whole. We, we normally had about a dozen guys guarding us. On this occasion, there was about fifty of them or so. Suddenly turned up, small private army really, um, with people with rocket-propelled grenades and um, uh, trucks mounted with big anti-aircraft guns, or all sorts of heavy weaponry. And what they were clearly worried was that, um, like any kidnap gang, the handover is a, is a dangerous moment because they've got to show themselves um, and they've got to hand us over. It's where they worried that the, the police might spring a trap or what have you. Um, so they went, they turned up for the handover mob handed. Um, and then we were driven up to the, the top of a, um, a mountain pass and uh, they said to us, right down there at the bottom of the mountain pass, you see those SUVs down there. Those are clan elders from another clan. We trust these people. They are going to act as the intermediaries um, and we are going to hand you over to them. And then they're going to take you back to Basasso, the town that you were originally kidnapped from. Um, and um, uh, so, and that is what happened. We were made to sort of wander down this mountain pass, um, hands in the air like that. Um, and they had our, their, they, they came down behind us all, guns all ready. It was all rather tense, and I was convinced that somebody somewhere was going to suddenly open fire and that there'd be a bloodbath. Um, if you've ever seen, you know, films like Scarface, where there's a drug deal that goes wrong with both sides rather worried about getting ripped off. Uh, and worried about handing over their goods, and then it, it ends up, you know, going horribly wrong. It's a bit like, a bit like being in 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 part of that, you know, uh, and only you're the cargo, as it were. Um, uh, but luckily, we were duly handed over. There wasn't any um, any great fuss. We we met this clan elder. He got out of his car. He was a, an elderly gentleman in a suit, a scruffy suit. Um, and he sort of said, oh, congratulations, you are free. And I think, I think my only words were, have you got a cigarette? Because <laughs> uh, we'd run out a few days before. Um, and then we looked round and, and the, the, the kidnappers were still there. And there, there was one, one of them who was the kind of leader who we tended to sort of have, you know, kind of a bit of conversation with, not much because we only really used to speak to each other in pidgin Arabic. Um, and I remember thinking at that point, what, what do I say? Do I sort of nod to him in a kind of meaningful fashion as if to say, you know, I've, you and I have been through a strange experience together and maybe we will meet in the next life um, and, um, you know, we could discuss all this or do I sort of snarl at him and say, <laughs> I'll see you in court one day, mate. Or do I say, well, you know, congratulations, shake his hand and congratulate him on his 
professionalism because you know we hadn't been tortured or anything like that and so on and so forth and as I was mulling this over none of those options really seemed quite right and then he he then sort of turned it turned away and wandered up the um back up the hill as it you know as if it had not even crossed his mind I was you know um you know to say good say say anything by way of parting shots at all so for me he was clearly just another another day's work I think yeah you were a commodity to him and to you he was is this this unusual experience that will hopefully will never be repeated yes I think I saw more meaning in it than he did yes I think yeah if you had it's a difficult question this but if you have one maybe a takeaway from your time spent being kidnapped is is there anything that, that that you've used in your life anything that's that you got from that um with the, i suppose the obvious pe- one people tend to think of is like did it put the rest of your life in perspective and mean that you kind of you know uh now carry on through life in a sort of serene fashion saying well you know nothing but other than being in the cave uh no it's not <laughs> i was i was back to being my usual sort of slightly bad-tempered impatient self within within just a few weeks um i didn't get any any kind of ptsd because we we well for a few reasons we, we weren't held for that long six weeks sounds like a long time but you can just about manage it if it's if you're not getting tortured or anything else and you've also got a bit of company if you're on your own or if you're getting mistreated or if you're held for a long time a very different sort of territory did you learn how to to deal with boredom that that well yeah that's interesting um not as well as I might have done, actually. Um, as I say, after about a couple of weeks, um, you know, we, we kept up, you know, we kept each other's spirits up, my fellow hostages and I, pretty well through just conversing to start off with. And, you know, because you're in an unusual situation, every subject is open for discussion. You know, you, your sex life, your work life, you know, you, you get very philosophical and everything. But after about a fortnight, you begin to run out of things to converse about. You start rationing the conversation and so on. Um, and you spend a lot of time just daydreaming. And um, I used to find that I just used to sort of daydream. You'd like to think that you you kind of drill down into deep philosophical questions, touching your inner core and doing those, pondering those things that you might never otherwise have time to, to ponder. But I found a lot of the time I was just thinking, you know, mulling over nonsense like, you know, could I remember every single teacher I had at school or making lists of, you know, um, every girl I'd ever fancied in sixth year and, and things like that, you know, just sort of drivel, basically. Um, a bit like the mental equivalent of counting sheep or something um, or doing puzzlers. Um, it, it wasn't a particularly, wasn't particularly impressed with my brain at that point. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it, it did start getting difficult because, you know, every every hour became like every minute became like an hour every hour became like a day and so on and so forth and i think it's at that point that you realize how much that that the the real challenge is not the physical challenge but the mental challenge of being able to keep going in that situation where you've got no distractions at all that that was the other thing that made it difficult for us was you've got no nothing to read nothing you know nothing to do um and, you know, luckily we got the bailout just as that was beginning to bite, um, whereas other people don't. Other hostages end up, you know, staying for sort of sometimes months or years or whatever. And um, 
often you know now think that that that's when the real ordeal starts when when, when we got tired and exhausted and sort of you know pretty much at the end of our tenor we were told right you can go home now whereas everybody else would have for, for a lot of hostages like that's the starting point this is where you have to start um coping with the ordeal is, is it right at that point where you you feel you can do no more tell me briefly about um the devil in the deep blue sea because you described your hostage situation as a walk in the park compared to um, what happened to these people. So so give us a little bit about that and where people can find it as well. Well, yeah, th- this was, um, uh, this this is a book I wrote. I wrote a book about my own kidnapping, but um, uh, uh, since then I, I kept quite a close eye uh, on the whole Somali piracy situation, partly as a result, of course, of what happened to me. And um, it, it continued on for about another five years, the piracy. Um, and a lot of sailors, about 2,000 sailors in all, were hijacked during that period in probably about 120 different hijackings. In most cases, the hijackings were resolved financially and the sailors would get to go home, typically after after about between three and six months, which is longer than, you know, than I uh, spent in captivity. Uh, but, they, you know, like me, they weren't generally harmed. Some of them were, but not, generally not very much. However, there were there were three ships um, that were hijacked where the owners didn't have any money to pay ransoms um, because they hadn't taken out kidnap and ransom insurance, which is something that most ship owners at that point did. Um, uh, these were owners mainly from uh, sort of Asia and the Middle East, where I think sort of standards of corporate governance in the shipping world are not as high as they are in in Europe and where corners are sometimes cut on things like sailors' welfare. And um, in, in these cases, in one particular ship, in the case of one particular ship, the owner kind of pretty much just sort of cut communication and released the sailors. However, the Somali pirates don't tend to do that. Um, it's a very poor part of the world, and once they've got sailors in captivity, they don't surrender them lightly. And so these particular sailors ended up spending three and a half years in captivity, which is one hell of a long time. I mean, that's, it does make my, you know, the time I sort of spent in captivity look like a blink of an eye. That though was not, not, not all of it though. They, the pirates thought that the owner, um, in saying that he didn't have any money and he wasn't insured, they thought he was just bluffing, and they decided to sort of, um, you know, it was a kind of very callous bluffing tactic. And so they they sort of responded in kind by torturing all the crews, thinking like, well, see how you, you know. Um, and so the, the crews were stuck between the, you know, the owners and, and the pirates, the worst of all possible worlds. Um, and um, uh, some of them were put out on the deck for days on end in the boiling hot sun, um, you know, uh, others were tortured with pliers and um, hit with rifle butts and just beaten for days on end. Um, uh, over the three ships, um, others were dangled over the side of the ship and, um, uh, you know, with their head under the, tied up and dangled so that their head would go under the water. You know, sort of medieval piracy stuff. And then um, a whole load of those were put on punishment diets on one ship, you know, one bread of one, one cup of rice and one cup of water a day, often just low quality brackish water as well. 
And um, on one ship, six out of, I think, about um, 15 or 20 died from a disease called beriberi, which is a, a vitamin deficiency disease. When, you, when, you, when you've not got a proper diet, your limbs all swell up and so on. Um, two of them died on the same disease on another ship. Um, one sailor was just executed in cold blood. So they uh, across these three ships, all sorts of horrific uh, things were happening. And nobody was coming to their aid. Um, the, the, the owners of the ships weren't. And unfortunately, neither were the, the governments, um, uh, you know, the, the, the governments of the sailors of the countries where these sailors came from. Um, partly because of the difficulty of actually mounting any kind of forcible rescue. If you try and rescue, you know, do a, send in the, you know, um, troops to, or, to, to, or a navy to, Rescue uh, a ship by force, rescue sailors by force is a very high risk that the sailors themselves will get killed. It's the sort of thing that only a few countries have the capability to do, like Britain with the SAS or America with the US Navy SEALs. You see that, you know, in like the, the Captain Phillips ending, it you know, only happens if you're British or American or maybe, you know, French or one or two other countries. These guys are all from places like Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, India. They, uh, they were mainly from poor families and their families didn't have, I don't think, had the clout or the nous a lot of the time, the financial clout or the political connections to um, get their governments to act. Um, and even if their governments had wanted to act, it's not clear how they would have done so. So these poor guys were just um, stuck there, really. And uh, I used to watch, follow their progress occasionally on through the shipping press just saying oh yeah that, that ship there that's that one is still stuck Lloyd's List used to have a, a kind of keep a running tally on how many sh hijacked ships there were and um, after a while I kind of realised yeah the, these three ships are going to be stuck you just apparently no, no one is ever going to come and rescue them eventually a British army colonel a retired British army colonel called John Steed who had been a, a former military attaché to the British embassy in um, Kenya um, and who had done quite a lot on the piracy crisis and had ended up working as a counter-piracy advisor to the UN, he realised what was going on as well and decided um, that he would try and rescue these guys. Um, he initially hoped to rope in the governments from you know, uh, around the world to get a contact group of some sort to, to assist with this. That didn't really work, so eventually he decided, well, I'm just going to do it on my own. And um, uh, that, is, that is, in essence, what the book is about. It's about his private rescue mission, which was a lot harder than I think he originally envisaged it to be. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>